So if you haven't already turned, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. Okay, let's read John chapter 20. We're going to read, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped in to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting where the, two, where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your Father. I'm sorry, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came in and stood among them. Peace be with you, he said. When, they, when he had said this, he showed him, them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. <clears throat> Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the sins from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But, when they said, but he said to them, Unless I see the hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger in the and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, the disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, and see my hands, and put, your, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. 
Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it's a long narrative, and I've said this before, but I believe that in in a narrative section, it's easy if you only pick a small pivot point to really launch off in the wrong direction of where the author is meant to take you. Now, we could take this and break it down into a three or four-part series on the resurrection. You could reasonably do that, but what I'm aiming to show is I think the flow of how John builds his narrative in order to accomplish something. And he states what he's after right in the bottom. I wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so we're looking at this text when Christ comes out of the tomb and he essentially seals and proves everything that had been promised by God since Adam and Eve. Okay, this is the moment when everything, every word of God proved true and every word that was not yet fully accomplished uh, would be guaranteed to come to pass. The amazing thing about this resurrection is that if you had been paying attention to Jesus speaking with the disciples, he predicted before he went to Jerusalem that he would be handed over to the Gentiles, crucified, but then he also predicted that he would come back from the dead. Now, maybe some gangsters uh, would know and be able to predict their own death. You know, people in trouble with the law or in trouble with somebody who's collecting money, or maybe an extreme skier uh, might cryptically predict his own demise because of the lifestyle he leads. But nobody has ever predicted their own resurrection. Lazarus came back from the dead early in the Gospel of John, but he didn't predict his own resurrection. It was a passive event. Now Christ said, I will die and I will rise again. And this is the morning where that was proven true. The resurrection is also God's acceptance of his sacrifice. And we're not going to talk about this too much this morning, uh, but we need to recognize that Christ went to the cross willingly. He said, I do, my life is not taken from me. I lay it down willingly for my friends. He was a sacrifice to God on our behalf putting an end to the animal sacrificial system from the, from the Jewish times, putting an end to that, dying on, in our place. But then when he was raised to life again, it was God demonstrating and proving that he had accepted the sacrifice. Christ, we looked at two weeks ago, declared from the cross, it is finished. And uh, that's on our podcast if you'd like to hear that. But really what he was declaring was the work of redemption is now done. There's no more work to take place. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. And we see in the book of Revelation that his sash as our high priest is no longer around his waist. Where priests used to work, the sash was around their waist. He had a sash around his chest, which was a position of rest. Okay, he was not girded for work anymore. Christ had entered rest, and because of that, we enter rest. And so that's the declaration that it is finished. And so John writes this account for us of the resurrection of Christ. 
And I think other gospels take maybe more pains to demonstrate some of the proofs of the unbelievable claim that their Lord had come back from the dead. There is that in here. Many people, if you listen to smart and uh, analytical preachers or apologists, will, will talk about the proofs within the text that we can trust what happened, that we can trust that this wasn't made up later. And there's lots of that in this text. But John has a bit of a different motivation. He's saying, I've written these things to you as signs, as something to help you see the truth, that the, that the claims of Christ were actually what he said they were to be, and that you can believe in Christ and that you can have life in his name. And so that's his goal. So I just want to take you through the narrative quickly, and so we can get a little bit of a sense, because there's a lot happening here, and there's a passage of eight days And so let's get a sense of what actually happens. And then I'm going to talk through some of the implications and the significance. And I think some of the deeper and incredibly rich theology that that is built out of this. And so let's look at how many people does John mention on the first day of the week. It's Sunday. That's the first day. In our calendar, it almost feels like the last day of the week, doesn't it? Because we start work on Mondays. But in uh, in the Jewish calendar, the first day of the week was actually Sunday. Sabbath was Saturday, that was the day of rest, and then Sunday was the first day of the week. And this, is, this became why um, the, the Christian culture began worshiping on Sunday. It was the day of resurrection. It became the Lord's day. And so he, she came to the tomb on the first day of the week, which was Sunday morning, which was the third day after he was crucified. Remember, he predicted, you know, tear down this temple, and in three days I will rebuild it. And they couldn't believe it because it took 40 years to build the temple, but Christ was talking about his own body. So on the third day, Mary comes to the tomb. It's dark. Uh, There's also Peter and John. Those are the people that we read about on the first day here. There were also angels, but I'm talking about humans here. There were angels and there was Jesus himself, but the disciples were Mary, Peter, and John. John focuses first and probably predominantly in this chapter on Mary. Mary approaches in darkness. John makes very clear that she approaches not when the sun is up, but when it's dark. John has used the theme of darkness and light really powerfully throughout the gospel. He speaks of the light coming in the prologue in John chapter 1, the light coming in the darkness not comprehending it. He speaks of Nicodemus approaching Jesus in the dark. There's a real theme that those in the dark are those who have not yet received Christ or not yet um, received the joy of Christ. And so darkness here for Mary is a little bit of a picture, not of her lack of belief, because we knew she was a follower of Christ, but it, it's, a, it's a lack of enlightenment. She's coming in the dark. She doesn't yet know what's going on, and yet she's, she's just distraught by the empty tomb. She's not overjoyed because, oh, look, Jesus rose. She sees an empty tomb, and she is distraught. And so she comes up to the hole of the cave, which if you're walking in a, the dark path on the way to the tomb, and then you see a, a cave, how much darker is that? It's very dark. It's almost like it's very dark and then there's super ultra black dark where you literally cannot see. It's just, it's just nothing. And that's almost what she sees. Instead of the faint reflection of the stone, she sees nothing. So she knows immediately that the stone had been removed. It says that in verse chapter one. She saw that the stone was taken away. Okay, that's witness item number one. The stone had been moved. Those stones were not designed to be moved. Often they were up on a a little bit of an incline. And so that when they were rolled down, you you couldn't just shove it out of the way. It was designed to lock down in place. 
So witness number one to the miracle of the resurrection is that the stone had been removed, and Mary is the first witness to this. Then we see Peter and John running together. If you jump over to uh, Mary's witness, she goes back and tells them. You know, she's, she's a woman. I don't know if she was with one of the other women at the time, but she goes back and she says, there, there's kind of an issue with the tomb. I think they took his body. So she goes and tells Peter and John. It says, Peter and John ran together to the tomb. Now, interestingly, we find out who's a faster runner here. I mean, this, my kids would love this. You know, when they eat their cherries in the morning, it's like, I finished first. That's included in the text here. We find out who's the faster runner. Now, it says the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is um, repeatedly, I think, at least three times in John's gospel. It refers most likely to John himself, the writer. He keeps his own name anonymous, but he recognizes the love of Christ for him. It's not that Jesus loved him more. It's just that this is how John identifies himself. He's like, I know that Jesus loves me. So we see John here, and we know that John was also the youngest disciple. Okay, so Peter shouldn't feel too bad. He's a bit older. He can't keep up with John. That's okay. You know, if you lose a race to somebody younger than you, uh, you have a bit of an excuse. And so John sprints there. Peter's like trying to huff and puff and keep up. He's more probably like a well-built fisherman, not designed for sprinting, but hauling nets. Um, But John, who gets there first, stays outside. He waits at at the tomb doesn't go right in. And naturally speaking, right, it's a tomb. It's where a body may or may not be. And then Peter arrives and charges right in. This is so consistent with Peter's character, to be impulsive, to be um, no hesitation, to answer quickly, to respond quickly, to dive out of the boat. He's just a man of action. So Peter runs straight past John into the tomb, if you can kind of get this picture. John's vantage allows him to see what? The linen. The linen cloth, see that in the text. It says, The other disciple outran Peter and got there first, and stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but did not go in. It's made clear in the text that he waits outside, he looks in, he sees linen clothing. Now, if the body had been stolen, which some claimed that that's what happened, the, the tomb robbers would never have left linen clothing, very expensive material. We saw, in fact, actually the Roman soldiers, when Jesus was on the cross, they cast lots for his clothing. Okay, it wasn't like today where you can just go to Joe Fresh or Giant Tiger and get a shirt for three bucks. Nice material was valuable in this time. It was hand-woven and it was uh, reusable and washable and, you know, you, it would be valuable to them. And so to see the linen clothes lying there is an indication that it was not visited by grave robbers. Okay, that's witness number two that something beyond ordinary took place because grave robbing was a a common problem at the time, unfortunately. That's ruled out, not entirely ruled out, but it certainly casts doubt on that claim to see the linen clothes lying there. John then comments on his own belief. He says that he didn't go in, but he saw and believed. Now, I don't know if this is John's retrospective saying, yeah, I think that's when I knew, or whether at that moment he fully believed. But at any rate, his witness of the, of the tomb with the clothes lying there was something significant for John. And then we see Peter enters and he sees more of the inside of the tomb. So if you can imagine, John didn't see everything. He saw linen clothes lying there. But Peter, who goes right in, gets a vision of the full tomb. He sees the full, um, the full space in there. And the cloth, we're told, was lying off by itself. 
That's why John didn't see it. But Peter, who went right in, had a 360 view of the tomb, and he saw the face cloth of Jesus. I think they call this the Shroud of Turin or something. It's like a, in the Catholic Church, it's an artifact that they claim they still have. Uh, I don't think that's the point of this text. What it's showing is that it is folded up by itself off to the side, separate from the body wrapping of the linen. And so all of this, and and John comments here, it says in verse 9, for they did not yet understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. So they went back to their homes. This is keeping with the consistency that the disciples didn't always fully grasp what Jesus was doing, what he was about. They were always kind of stumbling one or two steps behind where Jesus was. Isn't that true? Instead of seeing the tomb and being like, it's the third day, like Hosanna, he's, a, he's alive. They, they were just like, what's this? Where's the body? I don't understand what's going on. And it says that they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise. And so we've got the clothes lying there. We've got the face cloth folded up all by itself. This must have just been a little bit perplexing for the disciples. Like, why is the stuff still here? And where is Jesus? And they went back. And I think there was a seed of some excitement maybe in John. He recognizes that he believed but certainly it's not all pieced together. Okay, these witnesses got there and they were seeing these things and they reported them, but they didn't have it all put together. John turns his attention back to Mary. They went back to their homes. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. Okay, very often it's a woman who fully grasps the gravity of a situation that can sometimes escape a man. Don't you find that? I do. Um, But she's feeling the pain. She went there first to go maybe pay respects to the Lord or, or bring something to the tomb or just to remember him. She was there because she missed Christ. She loved him. He meant so much to her. And, and she stands there weeping. So the disciples leave and she's just still broken. She's sad. She's crying. She's, she's lost. She doesn't feel uh, a connection between the last three years of her life following Christ and now this empty future that she sees before her. So she's crying. And, and I, this is important because this speaks to the impact that Christ made in his ministry. It speaks to how well he cared for them. It speaks to how well he taught and shepherded them and gave them hope. The problem here, though, with Mary is that she stands there weeping because Jesus was so richly valuable to her. And yet we recognize that this is not... This is not a sufficient stance. This is not a sufficient way to live your Christian life. Uh, About 10 years ago, there was a popular um, preacher and and book writer who said, you know, even if they found the body of Christ today, it wouldn't shake my faith because my faith is so strong. So, So you have Mary standing outside weeping because the body is missing. And Christ takes her from that and brings her to the resurrection. We recognize, and we see in Thomas as well, that so many people who want to reduce Jesus' ministry to just being very valuable, very important, very high impact, very historic, and say that's enough to follow Jesus. That's enough to make a religion out of. It's not true. The scriptures don't teach that the high impact of Jesus' life is what we follow. We need more. Otherwise, we're standing at the tomb, weeping. There is no meaning 
beyond the tomb if there is no resurrection. And so we want to we want to significantly challenge and Paul says and I'm going to close with this later but Paul says if there's no resurrection there's no meaning to life. So we reject the pragmatic um, assertions of so-called Christians who would say, yeah, if they found the dead body of Jesus Christ, it wouldn't shake our faith because our faith is what matters. Not true. Our faith does not save us. The resurrected Christ is the reason we are saved. And so we reject that and we believe fully in the supernatural and we believe that not only that because we are creative and we have high hopes, but because it's true, because it's recorded for us in scripture and because we can trust it and because Christ has raised us as well another testimony of the resurrection of Christ. And so Mary is standing there crying and she sees two angels, one sitting at the foot and one at the head of where Jesus was laid. And they say, what's the matter? And she says, my problem is that they've taken away my Lord. I I want to see him. I want to be near him. Um, That's her connection with him. And so Jesus at this point chooses to reveal himself to her. He hasn't done this with the other disciples yet, but Mary is the first one that Jesus appears to. How awesome is this? I've talked about this before, but in, in those days, if you were to be in a court scenario, a witness prosecution scenario, if you brought a witness to the stand and she was a woman, they would just say, move to your next witness because her testimony is inadmissible to court. That's the way that culture viewed women at the time as unreliable Maybe they felt, oh, their emotionalism causes them to just not think straight or whatever the reason was, sub-valuable to men. They thought a woman's testimony is inadmissible. And so for the disciples to admit that the first person to see Jesus alive was a woman is to prove that it happened. Because if you were to make this up, you would never choose Mary to be your first witness, ever. And yet Jesus, this is who he chooses to reveal himself to first. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking She thinks he's the gardener. And she says, if you're the one that took him away, then just tell me so that I can go care for the body. And then Jesus says her name, and then she recognizes him. Christ alerts Mary um, as to his identity. And so this shows us that his body has undergone some form of transformation. Why didn't Mary just recognize him right away? Well, the scriptures and through other parts in this passage, we see that uh, he is beginning to uh, demonstrate that his body has been transformed in some way. And so Mary recognizes him and, and calls him teacher. And she rec- that, that's the title that they would use um, in terms of you would recognize your teacher by calling them as such. To be a disciple of someone was to call them teacher. So she recognizes her Lord. She recognizes that Christ is hers. And she says, teacher. And then he says, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And so he alerts her as to his impending ascension, that he's going to be gone soon. And so she goes back excited. I have seen the Lord and he said these things to me. She goes back and she's the first witness to the disciples. She finds them where? On the first day of the week, same place, uh, where the doors were locked because they were fearing the Jews. Now, if you were a disciple and your master had just been executed um, and the Jews had handed them over, you're probably a little bit fearful that you might be next, that the Jews are going to start picking you all off and handing you all over to the Romans to be crucified. So naturally speaking, they were afraid and understandably so. And Christ enters that place, even though the doors were locked, another sign that his body has undergone some type of transformation. It's not just 
merely the same body that the disciples had from before the crucifixion. And he comes in and he says, peace to you. And so they are fearful. They're afraid of their li- for their lives. And Christ comes in and offers them peace. Now, we have to see this. Because if you're afraid of being handed over to the authorities and being killed, and somebody comes in and says, don't worry, have peace, take heart. What would you expect them to say? Oh, I've got an extradition plan for you. I've got a, I've got a safe house I can get you to. I can grant you political asylum to get you out of this jam that you're in. He offers them peace when they're afraid for their lives. But what's the basis? Is it military protection? The text shows us, peace be with you. It says in verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. That's the basis of the peace that he offered the disciples. It was his hands and his side. It was the wounds that he had taken on the cross that was for them a sign and a promise of peace. It was his death on the cross that provided the means for their peace and their security. And so here he reinforces that, uh, that he will send them. He, we, we heard this before, that they were going to be messengers for them, for Christ, and that he was going to send them on the basis of, of his word and his work. And so he reminds them again, he says, as the Lord has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so we're reminded here that in this resurrection interaction, that the outflow of that and the, the consequence of that is, is mission. It's vocation. And I would probably say that of all the things that we become after we become Christians, this might be the most common descriptor of a new Christian, that you become a messenger. It becomes a vocation for you. No matter what you do for a living, you take on the vocation of a messenger for Christ. Now, that makes us all bivocational. That makes us all working someplace in the marketplace, but also messengers for Christ, because on the basis of the resurrection, we are sent. We become messengers for him. And so there he breathes, and he says, receive the Spirit. Now, this can be controversial, because you can say, well, were they filled with the Holy Spirit there? And then was there a second filling at Pentecost? Uh, I'm not so much interested in that debate, because I don't think there's enough weight on the text here to prove that there is some prescriptive expectation for Christians to have first, second, third, fourth fillings. There's no argument for that here. Um, in fact, the verb, I actually crossed it out in my Bible, says he breathed, and your Bible says on them. That's not in the original Greek. It actually just says he breathed. And he said, receive the Spirit. And I, and I would say that again, he's saying, on the basis of my sending you, you are going to need the Spirit. I am going to give it to you. And it is appro- fast approaching the time when that will happen. And so I don't think that argument is neither here or there, and I don't want to make a point of it. Uh, but certainly the Spirit is necessary for the mission, isn't it? They will need the Spirit. And in fact, the, the disciples go from hiding behind locked doors to boldly going to authorities and, and proclaiming Christ's resurrection and death to them in the face of hostility. And so I think there's something to be said that after the Spirit comes, we see this boldness. Because it says that after, you know, he says, receive the Spirit, they still find themselves behind locked doors a week later. I don't think they've yet been endowed with that power and the boldness that you and I enjoy, uh, being Spirit-filled Christians now, but they certainly would receive it at Pentecost. 
And so in verse 24, Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Do you ever feel like you're that person who's like, oh, you missed it. That was an awesome message. Oh, the party. You were, I can't believe you weren't there. I, just like, you're that, are you that guy or girl? It's like, you missed it. Jesus was here. Rats, you know? Where was, what was Thomas doing? Probably something less important than meeting the resurrected Christ, right? Poor Thomas. And then he forever gets this handle doubting Thomas after this. The guy goes down in history, wrong place at the wrong time, right? And, and he's forever known as doubting Thomas. And so he speaks his famous words here. They tell him, we saw Christ. And he immediately says, unless I put my fingers in the holes and my hand in his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. Now, for some of you, Thomas might be your hero because he's the supreme rationalist. He's the supreme evidentialist. Once I see it, then I will believe. I'm not going to be some sucker to your fairy tales. You know, your wishful thinking, all you emotional Peters out there. Oh, you think you saw Jesus? Great. You know, I need to see his wounds and I'm going to prove it to myself and then I'll believe. He says, I'll never believe. And so he becomes the famous doubting Thomas. Eight days later, Christ appears to Thomas and offers him the exact proof that he was looking for. And I guess Thomas makes good on his word. He says, my Lord and my God, I have to believe. This is the real deal. So what does this narrative give us? Before we look at the significance, what does this narrative give us as a whole? And then John finishes with his commentary. We can't miss that, and I'm going to attach that to my conclusion. But what does this narrative offer, offer us? I think as a whole, we see that everybody re- saw some type of different piece of evidence at a different time, and everybody reacted very differently. The disciples sprinted to the tomb. One stayed outside. One ran right in, so they saw different things. Mary stood there crying. She was much more afraid. She didn't want to go in the tomb. She ran back to get you know, the boys. Maybe they can go check it out and help me out with things. Everybody reacted very differently. Thomas heard the news and was not overjoyed. He doubted. He cynically said, there's no chance I'm believing you unless I see evidence. Every disciple had a different experience with the resurrected Christ, with the evidence that preceded and followed it. And they all reacted, frankly, very differently. Their emotions were kind of all over the place and their thoughts and their rationale were all over the place. And yet we see that Christ lovingly assured each person as they needed it in the place and the time that they needed it. Why? Because Christ is wise. He's gracious. He, he promised that of everybody the Lord that the Father gave him, he would lose none. Christ was certain that no matter who would come to him, he would protect them in faith and he would build up their faith. And so we see the disciples um, all being cared for uniquely in their own way. And so it, I, I hope that that's tremendously encouraging for you who can sometimes react very differently to think some things that bring lots of Christians excitement and joy brings fear for you, brings doubt for you. Something that you're excited about and somebody else would say, you know, I don't know how you handle that and maybe suck some of that joy out of you. We are all very different. And the disciples were very different from one another. And I pray that that's encouraging for you, that there is room for human difference because Christ is able to handle us. He's able to handle your weirdness. He's able to handle your emotional way off the deep endedness. And he's also able to handle your stoic rationalism. If you belong to Christ, he can handle you. And he cares for you and he will build you up. 
So that's the narrative. Let's look at a couple things. I just want to pull out some of the theology and I think more of the flow of argument that John is showing us. Uh, number one, and, we've, and we already covered this, so I won't go too deep, but it does build um, other parts of the passage. Jesus' resurrection was literal, physical, and historic. We see the linen clothes that had been lying there folded up neatly. Um, those clothes are not coincidentally mentioned. The last time um, grave clothes were mentioned in this particular book was when Lazarus was called out of the tomb. Lazarus was called out of the tomb, and John does not mistake to mention that his grave clothes were still around him when he came out of the tomb. He was still in a natural body that had just been resuscitated. John makes that very clear. The grave clothes were still on him. He needed to be removed from them because his dead body had come back to life. When Christ came back to life, his body did, but in a resurrected state. The linen clothes were no longer needed. They were not there. They didn't need to be removed. It was a different type of resurrection than what Lazarus had experienced. Jesus was not the first man to be raised from the dead, but he was the first man to be raised from the dead who would never die again. And that's the hope, and that's the indication of the linen clothing. And so it was not only literal, but it was theologically necessary. And we need to see that because if we don't have a literal resurrection, we don't have the basis for all the other claims that we make as Christians. So not only did the resurrection actually happen, but it was necessary. We saw that the, John, uh, John says in verse 9, they did not understand that the scriptures said that he must rise from the dead. It not only happened, but it was necessary that it would happen. It, it creates the theology and it proves to us what we believe about the future. Now, this, this is actually tricky because there's no footnote here where the Old Testament is referenced. Like, wouldn't it be nice if John was like, by the way, this is the passage I'm talking about when I say that he must rise according to the scriptures. Well, we read one of them this morning, Psalm 16. You will not let my bones decay. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol is the, uh, the Hebrew idiom for death. It's the grave. It's not the afterlife. Sheol is not the afterlife. It's death. And the psalmist, speaking prophetically, says, my bones will not decay, and you will not abandon me to Sheol, meaning I will be brought, brought back. So Psalm 16 is one of those important passages. Hosea chapter 6, 1 to 3 also gives indication of this. Israel is speaking, and it says that um, the Lord will wound us, and then he will revive us on the third day. Now, this is speaking of Israel, but we also recognize that Christ came to fulfill the word to Israel. And so the revival spoken of in Hosea chapter 6 is what probably the writer has in mind. And we also see uh, in, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Matthew tells us that just like Jonah was in the belly of a whale for three days, so Christ will be in the earth for three days and come out again. And as Jonah came out and went to preach to Gentiles, Christ was resurrected and ministry began to the Gentiles. The Bible is so incredibly detailed in how it proves itself. And so again, we think, oh, that's unscientific that Jonah could be in a whale for three days. But because that actually happened, we have a paradigm for understanding Jesus' ministry in a larger sense. And so according to the scriptures, he must rise again. Now, why is it necessary that he would rise? 
Why is it necessary that he would rise? We see John building this argument. So number one, his resurrection was physical, literal, and historic. Number two, it was theologically necessary. Number three, Jesus' resurrection is our restoration to God. We see this deeper in the passage. Jesus says to Mary, don't cling to me for I am going to go to the Father. I've not yet gone there. Jesus had repeatedly promised that he was going back to the Father and that, that he was working according to what his Father had told him to do, that he was speaking the words that his Father had given him to speak. He never once referred to the Father as anybody else's. He always said, I do what my Father has given me to do. Here we see for the first time, he says to Mary, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Again, we see that Christ's death and resurrection is what forces us to recognize the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. He makes you a child of God. He gives you the right to become a child of God. We see in the resurrection the proof and the fulfillment of the promise in John chapter 1, verse 12, where it says to everyone who did receive him, he gave the right to become a child of God. And here for the first time after the resurrection, he says, now I can call him your father because the work is done. You are no longer alienated from God. You are no longer an enemy of God. God no longer has judgment over you. You are now his child. He is now your God. And so we recognize that the the resurrection is our restitution and reconciliation with God. And so in the context of witnessing the resurrection and the doubt and the fear, what this speaks to us is that you doubters, you weepers, you skeptical. If you are in Jesus Christ, you have become a child of God. Mary's doubt here or her sadness or her lack of understanding, even Thomas's um, outright defiance against the, uh, the testimony, Jesus has overcome by his death. These are children of God. Because they belong to Christ. And so Christ has made us children of God. He has made us worshipers of the true God. Not hoping in vain and praying, you know, sending up prayers like Hail Mary's, but knowing that God hears us and knowing uh, that he loves us because of Christ. Number four, his, his resurrection is our peace. And again, we saw this, but what exactly does that mean? I, I mentioned that he showed his hands and his feet. But his resurrection is our peace specifically because of what preceded it. What preceded it. And that's why he showed the wounds and the wound because that's what brought us peace. And we have to look here and we have to remember Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 5 tells us that he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquity. Upon him was the chastisement that what? brought us peace. It brought us peace. The wounds that Christ endured on the cross brought us peace. Why? Because it was not just the Romans who pierced him. 
we learn through Isaiah that it pleased the Lord to crush him. These wounds were from God. This was God punishing Christ for you instead of you. It's not just hocus pocus that now we have peace with God. We have peace with God because someone else has taken our punishment. God is no longer angry with those who are in Christ. He no longer judges those who are in Christ. There is no longer a fearful expectation of wrath in God if you are in Christ. Because Christ stands before you and says, I was wounded for you. He shows his hands in his side and says, your war with God is over. You are at peace with God now. His resurrection is our peace. Number five, his resurrection is necessary for Christian mission. I've already said this before um, earlier, but because they saw the wounds and the resurrected body of Christ, Jesus now asserts that it is, this is sufficient for Christian mission. Now he says, as the Father sent me, I am sending you. His disciples are reminded on the evidence of the resurrection of Christ that they are now to be sent. The resurrection is necessary for mission because it aligns and focuses what our ministry is to be. It is to be, especially according to John, the resurrection from the dead to those who are not in the Lord. It is a reconciliation with God. We, we, we looked at this in 2 Corinthians 5 a couple weeks ago, that we have been given a ministry of reconciliation. The resurrection is our centerpiece. It is, it is the focus of our ministry. That because Christ is raised, that sinners can be raised. Sinners can be given new life. It promises the spiritual resurrection of sinners. And so the, uh, the resurrection is, is not only proof for, but it is necessary for Christian mission. Because we also see that Thomas, even though he learns of the resurrection of Christ, he's not willing to do anything unless he sees it. Thomas is not about to go, I mean, maybe being the supremely rational one, he would be the best at writing up a book, right? Or writing up a series of religious uh, requirements. Instead, he says, if Christ is not raised, I have nothing to believe. If Christ is still dead, I will go back to doing what I did for a living before. There is no Christian mission without the resurrection of Christ. And so it informs what our mission is. I promised I would read it and I'm going to from 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 to 19, just two verses here, but listen to this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's the problem. That's the problem with no resurrection. We can say Jesus died for our sins all you want, but if he was not raised, then we are also not raised out of our sin. If Jesus died for sin and stayed in the grave, then he is not able to pay for your sin. There's no way for him to carry your sin away if he is still dead. And so Paul says, you are still in your sin. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your mom, who was a believer, she's gone. If she's passed away, she's not coming back. She's gone to the sands of time, to the decay of the earth, if in Christ we have hoped in this life only, we of all people are to be most pitied. 
We don't have an inspiring message in Christ if he's not raised from the dead. We don't have a great religion and a great teacher that we should convert people to. Paul says we should be pitied. People should feel sorry for us if Christ is not raised from the dead because we're enslaved to a dead religion. There's no hope for the future. There's no reason to do anything. There's no reason to abstain. And he goes on to say, if that's the way it is, then we should just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. If Christ is not raised, there is no Christian mission. There's not Christian religion, let alone Christian mission. I urge you and I encourage you this morning that the resurrection happened historically and because of that, your faith is real. What you believe is real. Whether you doubt it or not, whether you wrestle with it and don't know how to live it out and struggle with it, it is still real because it happened outside of just your heart. There's this hymn that says... um, I used to sing it at my old Baptist church as a kid. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. So um, you ask me how I know he lives, and the line goes, he lives within my heart. Now, that's lovely, but that's not the only place Christ lives. We can all say, you know, my cousin or my brother or somebody we've lost who's precious to us lives on in our hearts. It doesn't mean they're really alive. Christ actually lives and he actually reigns at the right hand of the Father now. He doesn't just live in your heart. Your heart is a cloudy, dark, pretty messed up place a lot of the time, isn't it? If it's anything like mine. Jesus also indwells us. He is with us. He is within us, of course. But he also has his home in heaven where he, where he belongs, where he is glorified and exalted perfectly. And one day we will be reconciled to that and we will no longer see through a dimly lit glass, but we will see in full glory who Christ is. But we don't just sing, he just lives in our hearts. He lives for real. And that has significance, not just for you, but for everybody outside. Sitting out on the benches outside of Tim Hortons right now, that matters to them. They don't know it yet, but it matters to those people. Your faith is not your private expression of religion. It's not your private devotion to God. If the resurrection is true, then we have all been called to a vocation of a messenger to go tell people the relevance of Christ's death and resurrection. Not a fairy tale, but as something that really happened and really exists. And so let's conclude. Why is Thomas included in the narrative like this? Poor Thomas, right? Just the one doubter, that one black cloud in the disciples' group, that one guy who couldn't get on the party, and now we call him Doubting Thomas. Is it because you shouldn't be like him, that you should demand evidence? Well, I don't... I mean, you are what you are. You know, if you're looking for God, he'll show himself to you. But what's interesting is that Christ actually showed up eight days later and gave him exactly what he needed, right? Jesus didn't come and scold him and say, you know, you shouldn't have been asking for that. I mean, he sort of does at the bottom, but I'm going to explain that in a minute. But he comes and he offers to Thomas exactly what he was looking for. Jesus created in him the faith that was necessary to follow. But what I want to conclude with is this. I think John explains why Thomas is in here and the narrative um, and how it's relevant. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you have a pen and you like to write in your Bible, circle the word not seen in verse 29 
and then write, circle the word written in verse 31 and draw a line between them. That's the point that John is making for us. Thomas said that he had to see it. Christ came and said, now you believe because I showed you. Blessed are those who have not seen and who yet believe. What does he mean by blessed? Well, it means happy, but it also means accepted by God. Accepted by God, which means what Christ is saying is that there is no division between those who saw Christ in the flesh and those who simply believe with their mind's eye what is written in the text. This is why I want you to circle not seen and written. Because what John goes on to say is, look, he did all these signs. He appeared to us. He fed the 5,000. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He turned water into wine. He did all of these things. And he did so much more that you'll never know about. You'll never know the full ministry of Jesus Christ, maybe until heaven. But he says, I did write these ones so that you can believe. I wrote these ones. These are enough for you to believe. What he's saying is that cosmic meaning, peace with God, relationship with Jesus Christ is available to the honest reader. It requires no supernatural experience. It requires no dream or vision or God appearing to you privately or some miracle taking place or your relative who's dying of cancer to be raised for you to believe. God may in his mercy do something like that for you. But I would urge you, and as you talk to your friends and family who don't know the Lord, urge them to read. Because John said, these words are enough that they can believe. They don't need to be like Thomas and say, I need to see it in the flesh. Because most people never get to see Christ in the flesh. The vast majority of Christians have lived since the ascension of Jesus. The church has gotten arguably a lot bigger since Christ left. It does not require physical sight. That's what John is saying. And so for us, for our witness, our sight is through text. It's through our mind's eye. It's through imagination. It's through receiving the word that has been given to us, given to us and trusting it and believing it and applying it. For every single one of these disciples, their devastating loss of Christ was transformed into the thrilling realization that God was working, that God was renewing all things. Christ's body did not stay in the tomb. This is a reminder to us that our faith is not just a merely spiritual exercise. It's not just personal discipline, and it's not just a different way of life, and it's not just different songs we sing. His body was raised up as the first fruits of those who were to come, meaning that everybody who is in Christ will follow Christ in the same way. Your bodies will be raised again. You say, well, my aunt was cremated. doesn't matter. God can put the dust back together. He did it once. Our bodies will be raised up again. Our faith is a faith that deals with materials and molecules and flesh. It is the renewal of all things. And though we don't see it yet, we know the Bible speaks of people who have died in Christ as sleeping. It's a long sleep because their bodies will come back. The earth will be renewed. That which is temporal will be destroyed by fire and that which is eternal will remain and God is remaking the heavens and the earth. You think like, oh, I don't know how to imagine heaven. It's a lot like earth without the problems. God is remaking the earth and he proved it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. His wounds stayed with him. 
He didn't get a new body that washed away everything from the past. He had the same body. And that's exciting for us, that we will be renewed in full strength and in full resurrection. And John finishes by offering to everyone who will believe that they will also have life in his name. On account of the physical resurrection, human beings are offered a spiritual resurrection that begins when they put their trust in Jesus. Your, your first resurrection, Re- Revelation speaks of blessed is the one who partakes in the first resurrection. It, the first resurrection is when you receive Christ. You are brought from death to life, we read earlier in John chapter 5 or 6, I don't remember. You pass from death to life when you receive Christ. We don't live simply as spiritual beings. The resurrection shows that God is remaking all, all things. We also need to recognize that the fact that these things happened does not give us life automatically. John says, I wrote these things down so that you will believe in Christ. And by believing, you will have life in his name. Which means that Christ did all of those things whether or not you believe in him. But the life that he offers will not be extended to people just because it's available. You must believe in his name to have life. You can't just say, well, Christ did all those great things and I'm sure one day, you know, he'll sort it all out with me. John says, I wrote these things down so that you can trust that it happened. Then you must place your trust in that name. You must believe in Christ and you will receive life. I'll close just by saying, the theme of the Christian walk, the Christian ministry, Christian discipleship, Christian discipline, Christian everything, the theme is life. Why do we avoid sin? Because sin destroys. Why do we preach um, valuing the unborn? Because God is a God of life. Why do we preach, um, why do we preach relational purity, sexual purity? Because the opposite destroys. God is a God of life. If you struggle with how do you share the, ministry and the message of Jesus Christ, just think life. You could become alive. You could come alive to God through Christ. That's what John is teaching us through this, that as Christ was raised from the dead, he finishes that passage by saying that they may have life in his name. Jesus was raised. You can be raised. That's what our world needs. Our world does not need self-help, personal reform, a list of things to do and don't do. They need life to be brought back from the dead. And Christ can do it. We have a supernatural ministry and a supernatural message. And I pray we are emboldened in that. We're gonna close with one song, but before we do, I'm gonna pray and then Peter will come up.